Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the church uh, into a YMCA gymnasium. And uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, we're just so glad that you're here. Thank you for uh, making some time this morning to, to spend with us, and I'd love the opportunity to meet you after the service, be out in the lobby, and my name's Jamie. Um, and so it's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. I get to open up God's Word uh, with you all this morning as we continue this uh, series called Witnesses. We've got this week and next week, and we will conclude uh, kind of our survey through the book of Acts. Uh, so I'll get into that more in just a moment, but just wanted to reiterate a couple things. Eric made mention of one of them, but in this, uh, as we're getting close to Easter, um, on your uh, seats there, there are some of these smaller invite cards. I would encourage you, um, as I'm dropping things all over the place, to go ahead and uh, take one of those. There's extras in the back table out in the lobbies, or there's or there's some of these larger postcard ones. This is not only to remind you and to invite you, but that you might take it and that you might uh, invite a friend, a neighbor, coworker, family member. Um, would encourage you to do that as one of the things we've been learning in the book of Acts is God works in and through his people of telling the, the story of inviting people like, hey, you, you just got to come and, and hear. You might not feel equipped to have like all the you know, answers to people's questions and that's okay, but would you reach out and just invite somebody uh, to join you? And then the last thing I want to make mention of as well, and you can get more info at cpwp.life on Easter Sunday after the service, uh, we will celebrate baptisms, all right? And if you're like, well, where do you do that? There's a gigantic baptismal called the YMCA pool uh, that is here on the property. And so we get to go and do that. And so if you've never taken this next step, if you're a follower of Jesus but haven't identified in this way to, to say, hey, I identify myself with Jesus and with his people, uh, we would love the opportunity to have you baptized. Um, and so you might be a younger kid, uh, parents, maybe you've got kids that have made a profession of faith, haven't done this, up to a whole range, age range, right? There's no, there's no age that you like exceed. And you're like, oh, I don't need to do that anymore. Like, there's this invitation that we have, and we get to celebrate that together. And so not only is it for you, but it also encourages the body that's here. And so if you've not taken this step, I want to encourage you, uh, go to cpwp.life, sign up. What that will do is we'll follow up with you, help answer any questions that you might have. Um, you signing up on the website is not for sure committing to it, but it's at least saying, hey, I'd like to find out more information. All right. So this morning, we're in Acts chapter 27. We're going to look at verses 13 to 38. So here's what I want you to do is if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you did not bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on a couple of the back tables there. You're welcome to get up, grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please take that one home with you as a gift. We want you to be able to study God's word. All right. Or your other option is if you got your phone with you, go to cpwp.life. The second card you'll see as you swipe over is message notes. Anything that's up on the screen this morning, including the scripture passage, any quotes, questions, things like that will be posted there. There's space for you to type in your own notes, email them to yourself afterwards. So we want you engaging in the text, all right? It's the word of God that's living and active. It's not the things that, that I say, but we want to get into God's word together this morning, all right? So as you're turning there, I want to ask you this question. Uh, what's the worst storm that you've ever been in? All right? And we live in Florida, and so there's always the threat of hurricane. Maybe some of you have lived through hurricanes. Maybe that's been, been part of it. Um, and then you maybe pair this with what's the worst storm you've ever been in and also had to travel, all right? Because that adds a whole new dimension to it. Now, when I think about this, this particular question, there's a couple stories that come to mind for me, but probably the, the most vivid image, the one that's seared into my mind, the one that to this day probably has a lasting impact on maybe our entire family when we go to travel, is a flight that we were on from going from northern Wisconsin, all right? We had vacation in the summer to northern Wisconsin. Some of you are like, people vacation there? Yes, they do, okay? Uh, 
And so we were up, up there, and our daughters, one was about three, the other was just a little over a year old. And we drove to the central Wisconsin airport up in beautiful Wausau, all right? And uh, we were going to take a connecting flight from there to Milwaukee and then make our way back down here to Orlando. And as we pulled into the airport, I remember dropping uh, Heather and the, the girls off, and then I went to go park the rental car and do all of that. And as I was coming in, you could feel as like the wind is beginning to blow. And I don't know that we get this down here as much, but in the Midwest, when you look out and the sky is like, it's kind of this green, murky, brown kind of color, right? It's like, oh no, like something is not good. Something is brewing at the moment. And then the heavens just sort of unleashed. You know, like people are running in. There's lightning strikes happening all around. Um, several of the gates in this small airport were shut down because of lightning strikes. And yet, they put us on this tiny little plane, all right? And so we're in this tiny little, you know, connecting flight. Um, and as, as we're going, it is the most terrifying, tumultuous. I hope some of you are like, hey, I'm flying later today. Why are you telling me this story, right? But um, just up and down and just you're looking out and at no, you know, the, the, uh, the pilots coming on and giving all these warnings. The flight attendants are nowhere. Like they're not up at this point. Like they're locked in and we happen to be sitting like we're their little jump seat was right there. I'm like, this woman looks terrified. This is not good, right? And it's falling and we're just like, what in the world is happening? I kid you not, all right? The guy across the aisle from me, he's got the bag out. He's starting to hyperventilate. Where are you going to throw up? People just a couple rows back, I hear them saying goodbye to one another, right? Like, this is not going well. The only bit of levity was my three-year-old who's in her little car seat there. She's like, at one point goes, this is a crazy ride. So she was having fun somehow in the midst of this. And the rest of us are just terrified. And like, we finally, you know, make it back. And, and you could just see this exhaustion even that the flight crew had, all right? And it was one of those just absolutely terrifying moments. Now, thankfully, we, we survived. But it is interesting, too, even in that, like, I found myself at various points to be this big drop and this jerk and I'd grab on with extra strength into, like, the armrest. Like, why? I know it's a reaction, but like, me holding onto the armrest, like, if that plane crashes, like, well, I had the armrest, I'm going to be okay, right? That doesn't, it's probably not going to do anything. And so these storms, like when we travel in it or just being in a storm, like it is, it's frightening. It's disorienting, all right? Um, I think it's maybe a way to think about it, it's sort of destabilizing, especially when you're traveling and you're like, what in the world is happening? And I have no control and you're feeling like you're just being tossed back and forth. And sometimes there's real loss and it's, it's like, man, it just, you know, all these kind of emotions that we begin to feel. And what we're gonna look at this morning is in a storm. It's a storm that the Apostle Paul finds himself in. And this storm is given to us, I think, to communicate several things. It's not just about the actual physical storm that there is, as we'll look at here in these opening verses. There, yes, there's a storm that's described and there's this shipwreck that's going to occur. But really, there's this pattern that we see um, that this, I think, is showcasing for us, a pattern that we see throughout the scriptures, uh, that there's a purpose in the storms, that there's a purpose in trials and suffering and the reality of the situation is some of you this morning, you came in and you are in the midst of a storm in your life. And some of you maybe feel like you're just staggering in, like coming out of a storm. And some of you are just, maybe you anticipate one on, on the horizon. And if you're like, no, I'm good. I've never suffered. It's coming for you, right? I mean, that's just the reality of the world that, that we live in, that nobody is immune to this. And so the scriptures lovingly, because we have a God that cares for us deeply, gives us encouragement he gives us strength through his word. He gives us strength, I think, in this particular passage that we'll be in. So I want to look at uh, this storm here, but we'll begin to see this pattern that emerges. And so in Acts chapter 27, let me just set this up a bit. 
The apostle Paul has been on trial, all right? He's had different people trying to persecute him, trying to shut him down from proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And so in the previous chapters, if you were to go and read that, you would begin to see that. And there's these various trials and challenges that the apostle Paul is facing. And at one point, he appeals to Caesar. And so he ends up being sent, commissioned, he's gonna be sent to Rome to stand trial before, before Caesar. And so he is now making his way to Rome. And that involves getting on a ship and traveling, all right, um, through that part of the world at at that time, which would have been very challenging and difficult, like it wasn't an easy thing to do. Even for a Jewish man, like the the Jewish people, one of the beliefs was that in the waters of the deep, it's the chaos, it's it's a, a belief even that just evil resided there. And so there's this symbolism, certainly, that's happening too, of these storms and like battling the powers of darkness, all this chaos, and yet our God is a God of order and beauty and harmony. And how is he going to bring about that in the midst of storms? And so the apostle Paul finds himself on this ship. And I'm going to start in verse nine, just to give you a a little bit more context. All right. It says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over telling us kind of what time of the year it was. Paul advised them, all right, saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Not feeling too great if somebody puts me on a ship and like, you know, on the chance we can make it, but that's what they're going with, all right? And so verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, so they're feeling good at this point, like, oh, this actually is working in our favor. It says they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, so we're we're talking like hurricane level stuff that begins to happen, struck down from, from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. They're trying to keep everything from just falling apart. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began to, the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, this is a serious, serious storm, right? And so this is given to us, not just to tell us about what Paul endured and even, do you notice the language? It says we, all right? And so Luke is the one who's writing this. He's along on this journey. This is a firsthand account. And he's like, we encountered this. This stuff was was happening. And so there's this pattern, though, that I want us to see about how God is at work. Because we have to think about this. It's more than just the actual storm that was happening there on the open sea with that ship, with those that were on board. That there's a purpose that the Lord wants to work in and through your life and my life when we encounter storms. And as I said, they come. We can plan, we can try and prepare, we can try and get everything in order as much as possible, thinking that we might be immune to it, right? Maybe you're going to shelter yourself in, but the reality is the storms come. And there's nothing that we can do to make that not happen, all right? Sometimes it just happens. Some of them are things that we bring about because of our own sin, our failures, our wickedness, things that we're like, we bring upon us. And then sometimes there's just flat out, just we live in a broken world and there's storms that take place. 
And it kind of pops up and we didn't see it coming. Like, what in the world is happening? And so I want us to think about this as we look at this pattern and the purpose. Maybe on one hand, sort of a cosmic, like a big picture of like what God does in and through the storms, but then also very personal as we get further into this text. And so on the cosmic level, I came across this quote from N.T. Wright in his commentary in the book of Acts. Look at this. Here's how he describes it. He says, there are many Christians who've been taught that once they have faith, everything ought to flow smoothly. And maybe you were told that. Oh, become a Christian. Everything's going to go smoothly. That person lied to you. You can confront them after the service, right? Like, that's not how it goes. Acts replies, you have not yet considered what it means to take up the cross. If the gospel of Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, means anything at all, it means that those who carry the cross will have it branded into their own souls. The storms do not mean that the journey, though, is futile. They merely mean that Jesus, and this is so key, is claiming the world as his own and that the powers of the world will do their best to resist. When we talk about being witnesses and we're witnessing what Jesus is doing and faithfully building his church, and then also we get to bear witness to that reality, to call more people to repentance and faith and a trust, this ongoing life of repentance and faith, the reality is there's a very real power that is at work, the power of darkness, of the enemy that doesn't want to give up ground. And yet Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail. This means the church is on the move. The church is on the offensive. The church is not sitting back and sort of guarded within gates. The church is breaking through the gates, storming the gates of hell and reclaiming ground for the kingdom. That's the business that we get to be part of. Not in our own strength because we're awesome. Here we come as cross point. It's not that, but Jesus is doing this and we get to be along. We get to be used by him. But there's going to be opposition. There's going to be storms. There is a very real enemy who does not want to give up ground. And we're going in and saying, I'm reclaiming this. This belongs to King Jesus. And so we get to be part of that movement. So he says, he continues, those who are caught up in the middle of it all must recognize the mark of the cross for what it is and claim the victory already won in the unique events of Calvary. So don't be afraid, Pauls. We'll see here in a moment in the upcoming verses. You must appear before Caesar. That Paul is part of this cosmic work. You and I are part of this cosmic work of God advancing his kingdom. And he's chosen to work in and through the church with all of our failings and our shortcomings and our dysfunction. He works through us. Why? To demonstrate his power. That the strength isn't within us. That he loves to showcase his strength in our weakness. And so on the one hand, when we encounter storms, realize that, hey, there's difficult work ahead, and sort of at a cosmic level. But I also think there's also some very personal implications. And I love the way C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, A Grief Observed, as he's reflecting on suffering and of loss. He says this, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already, right? God knows this already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards, and his only way of making real, realize the fact was to knock it down. That there's a very personal aspect to storms. We don't want them. We're like, ah, why is this happening? But do we see that? And it's not God testing us where he finds out how strong we are. He, like Lewis talks about, we, he already knew that. He's God. But what it oftentimes reveals in my heart and in your heart 
if we take the time to actually pause, that we don't give in to just all the myriad, countless distractions that are out there, to maybe set the phone down for a moment, to actually engage with the God of the universe and to ask, what are you trying to teach me? What have I built my life upon that really is this, you know, sort of house of cards? Have we built our life upon the rock that is Jesus Christ? When the storms come, as Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, you go and read that in Matthew's account, and there at the end you have the one who built the house on sand and the one who built the house on the rock. What have you constructed your life on? Storms reveal the quality of what has been constructed. So there's a very personal component. We've got to enter into this and ask the hard questions. Lord, what are you revealing to me? And it's painful. I don't want to, I don't want to be dismissive of that or to ignore that, to make light of that, some sort of trite thing like, oh, you should just skip through life. Yay, more storms. Like, they are hard and they're difficult and there's brokenness and heartache and crying, right? I mean, that's just the reality of the world that we live in. I was reminded of this yesterday. I was at two different gatherings. One was a funeral for a very young man who died way too early, and the other was at an event raising awareness and money for cancer research for kids. That's the world that we live in. We can't escape it, right? There's brokenness that is all around us. And yet, the God of the universe is telling us, listen, will you trust me in the storm? Will you trust that I'm doing a work here? Will you trust and submit your life to me that I'm going to care for you, I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to teach you, I'm going to mold you, I'm doing something. We want to just skip ahead and get to the final destination. The Lord is like, no, no, I'm at work in the process. And so let's look at verses 21 to 26. There's this peace then that can actually happen in the storm. And let's, let's look at what the scriptures teach us, what the apostle Paul is going to declare here to a group of upwards, almost 300 people that are aboard this particular ship will learn. He gets up, look at verses 21 to 26. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Can we just stop there for a moment? All right. Um, Paul is doing a, I told you so, right? We read about it beginning up in, in verse nine. He's like, I don't think we should do this. And he's like, man, you should have listened. Now, I read several commentaries and they're like, yeah, he's, he's not really being obnoxious here. He's trying to tell them to believe. It. I just think he's pointed out, right? Um, Paul's not a perfect man by any, by any stretch or whatever it is, but he's just like, hey, you should have listened. All right. But I do think he's setting it up a bit to also say, hey, will you pay attention to what I'm about to say? Because that's what I said before, but there's been this revelation that I've gotten from the Lord, a word from the Lord. Are you going to trust what the Lord has for us in this? And so beginning in verse 22, he says this, yet now I urge you to take heart. He's saying to find courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, so take courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Now, Paul is not, remember this, he's not speaking these words as the seas are calm, as the sunlight has come out, and they're just sort of sitting out on the deck, having a drink together, right, talking about the Lord's faithfulness. The wind is howling. The boat is literally creaking and feeling like it's going to, to come apart at the seams. 
the men on the boat are freaking out. These are sailors that would have been very familiar. This wouldn't have been their first storm, and yet there's an anxiety, there's, there's an emotion in this particular scene. And Paul stands up and he's like, hey, I want you to know that things are going to be okay. There's a word from the Lord. He says, take heart. He says, an angel of the God to whom I belong. So Paul knows the presence of the Lord. We'll look at that more in a moment. But do you and I know that? Do we know God's presence in the midst of the storm? He's not abandoned you. He is there with you. And there's a closeness that you're invited into that sometimes it's only in the storm that we actually get to experience. And he says, in whom I worship. And for Paul, that's not... Don't picture he's worshiping in the sense of like ignoring the pain, ignoring the circumstances. That's not it at all. But he's like, I am devoted to this one. I trust in who he is, that I don't base things on the circumstances or just what I can see, but a bigger and a deeper trust. That's what generates worship. And then he relays these words of the Lord who said through this angel, do not be afraid, Paul. There's a very personal word that is spoken to the apostle Paul that the Lord of the universe knows his name, knows his story, speaks his name. And what was true for Paul is true for you as well. If you belong to King Jesus, there's a word that he speaks. He doesn't promise you that in every storm or trial that things are gonna go the way that you and I would like them to turn out. But he does promise, he does encourage us to take heart that one day everything is going to be set right that one day there will be no more tears, that one day Jesus will split the sky and Jesus will enter back in and Jesus will renew everything. He's going to fix it all. He's going to redeem it all. And the God who spoke these words and saying, Paul, he speaks your name. Now hear that this morning. The God of the universe, not only does he know your name, he knows your story, he knows your past, he knows all the ways you've rebelled against him, he knows all the things that you've done, he knows all the treason that you and I have committed, he knows it all, and yet, because of the work of Jesus, he speaks a name. It's a way of telling you belong to the family. Paul was not a perfect man. Paul murdered Christians. Paul was trying to destroy Jesus' church. That's why we've heard now some three times in the account of Acts the testimony of the apostle Paul where the Lord Jesus came and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul did not have it all together. Paul might even felt like, man, maybe I deserve this storm because of what I have done. And the Lord Jesus speaks the word and says, you belong, not because of what you've done or somehow that you've made yourself worthy. That's not it. He says, do not be afraid, Paul. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you, did you come in here this morning, not just in a cognitive sense, but is it sunk down into your heart? Do you know that you belong? Like in the storm that you're currently in or the ones that you will face in the future, part, maybe this is preparation for that or what you've gone through in the past. Or maybe you're like, I, maybe it's in the past, maybe it's still current. I'm not actually even sure where I am. Do you know that through the finished work of Jesus that you belong, that the Lord's presence is with you? We are created for the presence of God. Like if we were to go and read Genesis 1 and 2, we get this image of where the, how the story began and where it is ultimately heading. It's that there was this perfect communion between man and their maker, that we got to be in the presence of God, to walk with God. That's what you and I were created for. And we get this reminder here, in the midst of a storm, in the midst of worry and panic and anxiety, Paul, you belong to me. I've got you. 
several years ago, this, I think it was in 2010, um, there was an art exhibit. Now, it was a little bit different than the normal art exhibit. Um, there's this woman, her name is uh, Marina Abramovich, if I'm pr- uh, pronouncing that correctly. And here's the, the details of this, all right? She wanted to, she's an artist and she wanted to set up something, but it wasn't a, wasn't a painting or, you know, a, a sculpture or anything that she had done. It was this this piece of kind of like live art, and it involved her. And so in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, she set up in this room, kind of in the opening, kind of like uh, entryway. I've never been there, so I don't actually know what room it was in. But anyway, there's this room people would walk into. And there was a table, and there was a chair on one side, and there was a chair on the other. And here's a bit of the description. From March 14th to May 31st, 2010, at the Museum of Modern Art, Abramovich performed the artist is present. A 736 hour and 30 minute, don't forget that, static silent piece in which she sat immobile in the museum's atrium while spectators were invited to take turns sitting opposite her. So one by one, people began getting, hearing this, getting word lines were forming outside of the building, people spending hours in line to come in and to spend anywhere from two, three, four, maybe five minutes, sitting in a chair, like you see that one woman there, opposite this woman, no words were spoken, but simply one person staring into the eyes of the other person. Why would that happen? Every once in a while, there would be a moment where she would move toward the person, maybe to grasp their hands, but no words. And she commented on this, that part of the piece and the reason for doing this for so many hours was that there is an isolation, there is a loneliness that exists amongst people, amongst literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that inhabit New York City where you can't get a moment to yourself. She recognized it is possible to be around crowds all the time and yet be lonely and recognized what we now know some nine years later is a massive epidemic in our culture. And so she would sit down and people began flocking in because people wanted to be seen. To have somebody just look at them for a few moments, to pay attention to them, to not try and give them advice, to not necessarily make small talk, but just like, I see you. And it had such an impact as people began watching, people would sob. And they would just sort of break down from just somebody sitting there looking at them. Now, what a gift that this woman gave to these hundreds, if not thousands of people that came through. And it's this amazing picture of the fact that we were created to be known, and not just known by other people, but be known by the God of the universe, that he might look at us, and that he might communicate to us that you belong. You don't have to say anything. I know your story. I know your name. I know the ways you've messed up. I know the ways you're going to mess up. And yet, I love you. I've given my son for you. And the God of the universe is looking at us. It's amazing what she did. But the Apostle Paul reminds us there's something better. I belong to the God of the universe. Do you know that sort of belonging? As we talk about our mission as a church, we're pointing our community to Jesus so that people might experience, they might know God, that they might find freedom, that they might experience belonging is one of the things that drives us that we have an opportunity to do this for one another. It's why we push things like groups and involvement. Like you're not meant to do this in isolation. You need other people to see you, to see your story. Ultimately to remind you that the God of the universe, he sees you. 
Maybe a way to think about it is this, that particularly, I would say it's in a heightened sense, storms that can either produce this jadedness, this callousness, or it can result in a closeness like you've never experienced. To know that the God of the universe says, you belong to me. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have a closeness with Jesus that others of us can only dream of. And though you wouldn't wish what you endured on anybody, there's a closeness in the intimacy with the Lord that you've experienced through the storm and through suffering. That God in his grace hasn't allowed your heart to grow callous and cold, but rather you're experiencing the closeness of God. And I'm not saying that's not a struggle. I'm sure there are times it feels callous and cold. And yet there's this invitation, like, I'm going to choose to see that the Lord sees me, that I belong to him. But as this continues, I mean, Paul gets up and you kind of would wish that the story would go, okay, and everybody's like, all right, great word, Paul, we're, 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 we're with you, just tell us what to do. But that's not the way things work. And the reason I told you this is a pattern, because we can even think about this in the narrative of the scriptures where Genesis 1 and 2, and it's the presence of the Lord and everything is beautiful and harmonious. But then there comes Genesis chapter 3, and it's in that moment where we say, you know what, the presence of God is great, but I think he's holding out on me. I think there's something more that I can have. I want to do things my own way. And we embark on this mission to make ourselves ultimate, to ultimately just sort of looking out for us. And it results in death and devastation and destruction. And so in some ways, we get this almost little parable here in this actual historical event that took place that the Apostle Paul promises, hey, there's this presence. But then you have some people right away that it's the problem that has plagued us from the very beginning, from Genesis 3 on. They were like, yeah, yeah, yeah but I think I've got to save myself. I think I've got to do this. Look with me at verses 27 to 32. When the 14th night had come, think about it, it's a long storm. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing the land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So far, so good, all right? But they're up to something. Because remember, you have some of the soldiers on board, but you also have the sailors, the ones that they had hired to like, hey, take us across. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the rope, the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. You see what's happening here? There's a group of people, they're like, they've heard the words, but at the end of the day, they're like, listen, we know how this works. We've got access to this smaller boat. We're going to lower that without anybody looking. No one's going to notice, they think. We're going to go off and we're going to do our own thing. And we'll just, hey, we don't, we don't necessarily trust these words that Paul has spoken. And that showcases the condition of my heart. I believe it showcases the condition of your heart, of all of humanity's heart, where we might hear the word, we might know the presence, we might even experience that. But then there comes these moments of like, ah, I got to do it in my own strength. And we think, well, nobody's going to see, but the God of the universe sees. And he's inviting us to know that we belong, and yet we so often want to run. And what you see here is the Apostle Paul calls it out, and they literally say, okay, cut the ropes. You have to trust that the only way to find salvation is through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. The ultimate rescue that we need 
is to trust in Jesus. Even if in the storms of this life, things don't go the way that you want it to in ways that, we, that grieve the heart of God, things that are really, really painful, if you know that you belong to him, if you know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, one day he's gonna set everything right. It's in that context that Jesus was speaking about, even a room that he's preparing for us, that we get to be in his presence, we get to be in his home, we get to be with him forever. It's what you're created for. But there's this call to cut the ropes. What is it that you and I think we need in order to find life and find satisfaction? What is it that we think, and you know what, this will rescue me, this will make my life worth living, this will give me meaning and purpose. It might be things just on the surface, right? If I, if I make this amount of money or I finally land this job or I get into this school or I get accepted to this program or I get this house or I get this relationship or I get these kids or my kids behave in this way. And he's not saying cut all those things out of your life, but there's a call to sever the ties when that thing has become ultimate, meaning like that's not where you're to find your identity. That ultimately we're created for the presence of God and those things are good gifts that the Lord gives to point us to him. But they're not meant to terminate on themselves. The more we worship those things, the more we trust in those things, the more we engage in sort of these self-salvation projects, thinking if I just have other people's approval, if I can just have comfort in this life, or if I can have power in control, then I'll be okay. And the Lord is telling you, listen, you're created for so much more. Will you do the hard work of cutting the ropes? So maybe ask yourself, what is it that you're clinging to that actually needs to be cut off? And that, that may be in a permanent sense, but there's some things that, no, that's just part of your life. You're not to cut those things off, but you are to view them through a new lens. This is a gift that the Lord has given for me to steward. This is where I, something I can enjoy, but I don't find ultimate meaning in. And so what are you clinging to that needs to be cut off? Or what are you clinging to that needs to be cut out? What are the things that are holding us down where we're not experiencing this belonging? I don't know if you've heard this particular story before. Um, there's an embellishment to the story that kind of has uh, become sort of a legend that's been pa passed on, all right? Uh, it's about a man named uh, Hernan Cortez, all right? A Spanish sailor who ends up uh, in Mexico as this explorer, all right? And he shows up, he's got these numerous ships, um, and he utters these words. These words are actually true, all right? As part of the historical account, he says, we're all in and there's no turning back. Now, the legend that has grown around this man and him as an explorer is that when the ships arrived there, that he actually had his men set fire to the ships, that they burned the ships, and he was like, we're all in, all right? That part has been embellished, all right? Not that I was there, all right? It's a long time ago. But what is actually historically true, though, is the same principle is that place. Though they might not have burned the ships, they actually dismantled the ships, and they began to use the wood and the various parts of the ships to build shelter and all those things so that they might survive. And there was an intentionality in dismantling the ships. Why? Because he knew that it would be hard, it would be dangerous, that there might be a temptation to say, I'm going to get, I'm going to escape, and I'm going to go back. And it was this cutting off of like, no, we've got this mission, we've got this thing that we're called to, and we're not going to have this means of escape. It would be tempting to do that, and so they were dismantled. And I think this is a picture of what the Lord is inviting us into. There's this mission to trust him to be about his work, to bear witness. And there's this temptation to always run back to things that we previously worshiped or found our identity in. You becoming a Christian doesn't mean all those struggles go away. There's this ongoing need to sort of cut that off. That thing creeps up again. It's like, ah, oh, I got to repent. I got to turn in a new direction. I got to remember 
what I'm here for? Do we have the faith to actually do that? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said it this way, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. In the midst of the storm, will you have a faith and trust in the one who takes care of you, who provides for you, who's with you, who says that you belong? And ultimately, we can rest and trust in Jesus because he is so worthy. Look with me at verses 33 to 38 as we wrap up. So Paul then says this, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. Paul's not against the practical, right? I love this aspect of it too. It's like, yep, God's going to save us, but dude, eat something. All right. And so he moves on and he says, take some food for it will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. He's not afraid to give thanks to where all good things come from, all right? In the midst of a very pagan crowd, he's like, I'm gonna give thanks to the Lord. I got an audience here, all right? So before he distributes the food, he gives thanks for it. He worships his God. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. It says, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. It's like Whole30. They're going gluten-free for a few days, okay? So um, bad joke, but anyway. All right. So as the verses continue, it tells us that they eventually do make it onto this island. There is a shipwreck and they come floating in on these pieces. But in this, here's what I want us to zero in on as we as we finish up, there's this ultimate protection. Why can we trust God? How can Paul have this sort of faith? How can we know this, have this sort of confidence? It's because there's a God that is protecting us. There's a God that cares deeply for us. There's a God who Paul relates, says, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now that is not this sort of prosperity promise nonsense that you would latch on to and be like, okay, nothing is ever going to go wrong for me because I'm in Christ on this earth. That is not true. Go read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. There's this encouragement from Peter, like brothers and sisters, get ready, the fiery trial, like it's coming. Like life is difficult, life is hard. And yet for those of us that are in Christ, these words ring true, that they are ultimately true, that the Lord Jesus not only knows that hairs on your head, he also says not one of them will perish, that he cares deeply for you. And the way that you and I can know that he cares deeply for you, that he's ultimately going to protect you is because of what he was willing to do. There are so many parallels as this story is being told. I do believe that, that Luke, as he's giving this account for the Jewish audience, one of the things that they would have been thinking is like, okay, I think like I've heard some of this story before that there's been a ship and there's been people at sea in this terrible storm and it looks like everybody's going to perish. It's the Old Testament story of Jonah. And it's Jesus himself who comes on the scene and he says these words to a Jewish audience that would have known that story backwards and forwards. They would have known all the ins and outs of that story. They would have known that in this story, storm. It was because Jonah rebelled against God. God sent the storm. Now Jonah's endangering this whole ship. And Jonah, because of his wickedness, was thrown into the storm in order to bring rescue. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, for just as Jonah was three days and three
three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus speaking of his, of his death, but then this ultimate resurrection that will take place three days later. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here, that Jesus says, Jonah deserved what he got. And Jesus is saying to us, and the reason there's this ultimate protection, the reason you and I can have faith is we know how this story plays out, that Jesus himself, the one who had never done anything wrong, who was undeserving, where Jonah was deserving, where you and I were deserving of the storms, Jesus himself is the one who is perfect, spotless, this lamb of God, the one who'd never done anything wrong, was hurled willingly into the storm, the storm of God's wrath that should have been poured out on you and poured out on me, that we should have died a sinner's death. That is what we deserve. Jesus, the righteous one, was hurled into the storm so that unrighteous people like you and me could be brought in, that the God of the universe can say, I know your name and you belong, and you've trusted in me, and you're part of the family. That's why these words that hundreds of years earlier were penned by the prophet Isaiah under the inspiration of God, that we know why they're true and how they're true. It's because Jesus was that better Jonah. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. How? To the finished work of Jesus. I have called you by name, and you are mine. You belong. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Jesus was willing to be consumed for you on the cross. The wrath of God flooded over him, poured out on him, took his life so that this exchange could take place where you and I would get the righteousness of Christ so we might have a right standing before our God. And Jesus, what we'll celebrate on Easter is that he conquered Satan's sin and death, that there may be storms in this world, but Jesus has defeated the ultimate storm that one day he will set everything right and there'll be no more storms and there'll be no more trials and there'll be no more difficulty and there'll be no more sadness or confusion or pain. And this is what the Apostle Paul banked his life on. And this is what we are invited to bank our life on. So I want to close this in prayer. I want to give you a moment to respond. What is it that you need to repent of? Maybe what needs to be cut out? What thing have you been trusting in? What self-salvation project have you been on? Will you remember that Jesus was hurled into the storms that you and I might actually be able to endure? That we might know that we belong? That we get to rejoice that he knows our name, that he has redeemed us? So we're going to pray here in a moment. And also, we're going to have an opportunity to continue to respond in just this time of worship. We're going to worship Jesus through song. We're going to give him praise for what he's done. We're going to worship by giving this morning. If you're a guest, feel no obligation to give. We're so glad just that you're here. But those of you that this is your home, this is your family, thank you for giving generously, sacrificially. The mission can go forward. That we don't trust in money. We're all in. We're not hedging our bets. We're like trusting that, we're, that Jesus is who he says he is. There'll be members of our prayer team in the back corners. You need prayer for anything. Maybe something that you really am like, man, this thing is weighing me down. Like what needs to be cut out? They would love to pray with you, to pray for you. Maybe a next step for you is you need to sign up for baptism. And we're also gonna participate in this other sacrament the Lord has given to us in communion. There'll be leaders on either side of the stage. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come up to dip the bread into the cup and partake. First Corinthians 11 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are with us in the storms, that you promise to never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to be forsaken, that you were willing to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you that we as your people, we would never experience that forsakenness. Thank you that you willingly went into the storm, the storm that we deserve, so that we might have life and life abundantly, that we might know a joy of our salvation, that we might know that even in the trials and difficulties of this life, that you are with us, that you're guiding us, that you're protecting us. And so God, would you renew our faith? Would you grant faith to any who walked in here this morning without it? Would you strengthen our faith? And God, may we respond now in faith to you as the glorious one. And God, I pray that you would hear our, our prayers, that you would hear our praises, that you would see a group of people coming up and participating in this meal that you've given to us where we are reminded that you are our source of life. And so we thank you for that provision. And God, in all this, I pray that you would get your glory and we as your people would experience great joy. It's in Jesus' good name we pray, amen.